Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. We are live on the 28th of September in the Sugar Club on Leeson Street in Dublin City Centre. Tickets are available now on eventbrite.ie and the link for that is at the bottom of this podcast that you're listening to right now. And if you're a member at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack, there is a discount code waiting for you in your email notifications. If you're not a member, please join us. It's a price of a fancy cup of coffee and a scone once a month to you. The easiest bit of activism you can do. You'll be helping to carve out that little bit of space that this left-leaning, independent, ad-free, sponsor-free podcast platform needs. And by paying it forward, you're keeping it free for everyone. So take a minute and click the link at the top of the podcast. This is patreon.com forward slash tortoise And join us for a month. That's all I'm asking you to do. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Thanks for liking, sharing and recommending this to people. I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Shrapnel Podcast. As usual, I'm joined by my co-host Sam McElwain. How are you, Sam? I'm not too bad. This fine, fine night. Good, good to hear it. It's been all of um, one day since we talked. So I don't even think it's 24 hours, mate. To be honest, uh, it hasn't been. I spoke to you more. I spoke to my wife. Now, not that's not necessarily a bad thing, but that's the case. Okay, so for tonight's episode, we're going back to 21st of July, 1972, as our starting point. And this was a few weeks after the breakdown of talks between the provisional IRA and the British government. And the IRA on that day set off a number of bombs across Belfast. Nine people were killed and over 100 injured in what became known as Bloody Friday. The oldest casualty was bus driver Jackie Gibson. And two days later, the Sunday on his 46th birthday, Jackie's body was returned to his family. In this episode of Shrapnel, we are honoured to be joined by Jackie's son, Robert. Welcome, Robert. Thank you, Gareth. How are you keeping? I'm sorry. I'm keeping grand, yes. I'm uh, looking forward to this uh, podcast with you guys tonight, yep. It's good to have you here, Robert. It really is. Thank you, Sam. Well, I think it's been um, a few years now since we first uh, met each other, albeit, again, it was a bit like uh, this. It was over the phone on that occasion when you um, were in touch with Prony when I worked there to ask about information relating to Bloody Friday and, and your father's uh, murder. So I think since then we've developed a wee bit of a friendship online through Twitter and phone calls and, you know, we're hoping to get a face-to-face meeting. So again, it's a real honour to, you know, have helped you along this journey of discovery in some way. So can you tell me a wee bit about your dad to start off with and what sort of man he was and what ultimately motivated him to become a bus driver? I'm just really interested in that. Yeah, well, obviously, um, the time where I was born and the young young person, he had been a bus driver all my life. He had um, worked in Maggie's Foundry, which is something I only found out lately, believe it or not. It's amazing just how much you, you maybe don't know about uh, your parents sometimes, but um, he was always a bus driver to me. But uh Last the time, whenever I was speaking to you um, at the start of this whole thing, Gareth, um, uh, eventually it led me then to um, speak to some people from TransLink as well. And believe it or not, um, one of the, the current managers of TransLink managed to dig out um, his original uh, employment card, and that's on the employment card. It said on the left hand side, you know, it was came from Mackey's Mackey's to join. Uh, uh, Ulster bus or the Ulster Transport Authority as it was then and he looking at the date that he joined it was the day after his 18th birthday so he obviously um, couldn't wait to, to join Ulster bus or Ulster Transport Authority he would have been a conductor and so um, we had lived he had lived out here uh, in a place called Raffrey which is between sort of um, Ballygown and Crossgar and uh, his family lived out here uh, originating, one part of his family originated from Tully West, which is up near um, Sainfield, and his mother originated from outside uh, Five Mile Town. Lossett was the, um, the the town land. So anyway, he had become a, um, a bus conductor, presumably in his uh, in around eighteen years of age, and uh, married my mother subsequently to that, and we were all born. And 
in terms of what he was like as a as a father, yeah, he he, he certainly um, looked after us all, and uh, we 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 wanted for nothing, as the old saying goes, you know, and um, very keen in gardening, very keen in helping out in um, his locale, and it's quite a few people were glad of his service, just cutting gardens and things like that, you know, he's a very generally decent person, you know, you know, and um, mm-hmm. say me being the oldest at the time at nineteen. Uh, and now I'm 70 just gives you some idea of the stretch between then and now. And that's something which um, probably I would regret not looking into this much earlier. But you being the first, really, I think you were really the first contact that I had had um, to try and find out some information uh, in this last two years. Uh, in, the intervening pe- in the intervening period, there's a few things I had done, uh, being involved with, for example, the historical inquiry team, this type of thing. And uh, which uh, we've talked about before and presumably we'll chat about at some point. But um, they had given me the impetus, I suppose, at that stage because they had left the proviso that uh, anybody who wanted to go and see my father's body and, uh, would be able to do that. And all we had to do was ask. And at that time, I didn't uh, ask at all. I was a little bit nervous, as you could well imagine, not knowing what um, state he might have been in. And it was not until I was retired from work that I decided to have a go at um, making this a kind of a project for myself to try and find out. And to be honest, just to find out as much as I could about what happened that day, particularly in around Oxford Street. And that was my main reason for starting this project. So, I mean, not not to make light of it, but essentially it's, it's, it's family history. And you find a lot of people don't, appreciate the need to find out that history of their family until they do get to a certain age but but for you and for many other people it, it's it's a difficult process because there are certain fears and you've talked to me about this before the fear of confronting the the reality of, of what you maybe imagined over the years had happened to your father's body and death so to go back a wee bit can you maybe talk a, a bit about the actual day, the 21st of July, 1972, and what your memories are of, of, of the hours and the time leading up to, to what happened? Yeah, I can, I'll can. i take you back a week beforehand, um, whenever uh, we I was standing in what we would have called the scullery of the house uh, at the back, and I can still see my father um, combing his hair. He was wearing a pink shirt, wishing us all the best as we were heading off to this uh, boys' brigade and girls' brigade camp on the Isle of Man. So that would have been, I think, that's about a week beforehand. And um, the intervening week, of course, we'd been to camp. We'd done all the things in, uh, on the Isle of Man that you do. And the, the, the return um, ferry, I think, took about took quite a few hours, but it, it came into Belfast at 2 o'clock on the 21st of July. So we disembarked from the um, the ferry. Of course, not a single sign of anything wrong, not one iota of a problem. And what had happened then that members of the local, I suppose, community here had uh, arranged to send about half a dozen cars up to collect us all off the ferry and bring us back home. So we would then at the dockside have been picked up by a number of our friends and cars and driven out um, out of Belfast. Now, for the life of me, I can't remember. There's almost a logic in my mind that if we were coming from the docks out towards Ballygown, Castlereagh, Ballygown, we might well have driven past the bus station. None, none of my family, and we were all, came out, can really remember whether we can pass the bus station or some other route. But when we came out of Belfast, Gareth, there was no not a hint of anything that we saw uh, coming out but that was the day it happened uh, would have been taken up by the travel back from the Isle of Man and the travel home so say we got home around a bit three o'clock there was still nothing that we could hear although we all know it was all breaking out at that time in Belfast yeah I suppose back then we didn't have Twitter and we didn't have Sky News and the 24-hour feed, and you sort of had to go R they are waiting on the bulletins, really. Um, and even lack of phones at that point. I mean, it wasn't as if everybody had a mobile phone on them. It was, it was house phones, and you, and you depended on the news going around. So 
I can picture the, the sort of the feeling of the things starting to come out on the news, but you, you're not quite sure exactly where, how, and when are you, and that that must feed into the sort of the atmosphere around the home. But you, for, for some reason, we don't automatically assume our loved one's going to be there. So, as, although you hear about the bad stuff in Belfast, were you even concerned that maybe your father was anywhere near it at the time? Not at all, Sam, no. In fact, uh, you mentioned the telephone in the house. We didn't have a telephone in the house at that time at all. Um, we probably had only had a television maybe in the past two or three years previous to that. Um, so as best as I can remember, um, it was only seeing things beginning to happen uh, on probably on the television or the radio that we realised something was going on. But of course, your your mind says, well, you know, my father couldn't be involved in that. There was nowhere near the bus station. And then the next thing you hear about the bus station being involved, and you begin to think, well, maybe something, you know, has happened. But again, you think, well, no, it's probably just been a blast and, you know, people will come home as usual. So it didn't. It wasn't until probably about half past six, I think it was, because I have a little note in my diary that the, uh, it was beginning to get very ropey, as they would say, as to what was actually happening. And my mother... Um, I kind of remember shedding a few tears. She thought maybe something had occurred because I think from the timetables, the bus timetables that I've been uh, able to to get, he was probably due home about a quarter to five. And by that half past six, you can imagine then things were beginning to get really scary, you know, and that's probably when I think sometime after half six, I think I can remember going to... um, another bus employee's house to see if he could enlighten us to what might be wrong but he, he his wife answered the door and she didn't know really anything about it or she did, she didn't say but the time I got home uh, my father's two brothers had arrived and they had the news that what we had all been really I suppose fearing might have happened and um, that, that was really the, the big thing that I remember uh, about that day yeah, but kind of the finding out um, and then you mentioned the body coming home I think that was really what sealed it that we knew that was that was the end and that that was as you've told us that was on his 46th birthday so he was a, a very young man yeah he was um, yeah, now as you see now it's funny now looking back that I'm now 25 odd years older than he was when he was killed and uh, his birthday was on the on the um, the 23rd of July, and we had brought presents from the Isle of Man, I suppose, that just more more presents for, as you do when you're a kid and you're away on holiday, you bring back some gifts for your family. Um, but that's, that's um, that particular Friday evening then was uh, how, how, how we found out. The Saturday, was, don't even ask me for the Saturday, I can't remember anything, but this, the day that the body was brought back, and as far as I can remember, it was a Sunday. Um then that was the day I think that really sealed the whole thing up. But the um, the Friday itself, it's it's just anything uh, anything before the Isle of Man boat docking. I can't remember. It's it's funny how you you know as if your mind stops at a certain point and you can't remember beyond it, and almost everything's related to that particular point in, in your memory. I mean, I, I've talked to a couple of people who lost loved ones in the in the troubles, the conflict, um, whatever t- terminology you want to put on it. And a good friend of ours, Paul Wilson, was on the podcast last year, and he talked about his father being murdered, Senator Patty Wilson, and just the f- effect, the profound effect that that had on his mother, to the point where she was medicated and never became never became the same woman that she was before her husband had been killed. I, I'm detecting there might have been a similar effect on your mother. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but can you talk a wee bit about that? Yeah, I think it, it, it's in the immediacy of the death and the funeral and all that, um, I suppose those effects are hidden to some degree because you're going through all those motions. And afterwards, um and don't forget, at the same time, there was lots of other things were happening. I mean, something like 10 days afterwards, you had Claudia and all the rest of it. Um, so you knew that other people were getting it as bad as, as we did and maybe worse in some cases. So uh, the whole thing about um, 
going forward from that particular day from her point of view was that I think she just got down to doing what she had to do. There were five of us and she had to, I was probably the only one working at that stage. Um, one of my sister, who's a bit of, just over a year younger than me, she'd have been working maybe very soon afterwards. So able to contribute something. Um, and it wasn't that long after, maybe a couple of years, I moved away to Oma to, to work down there. Um, so I think she was probably strong enough in her own mind that she just had to get on with it and, and try and, and look after us as best she could because the youngest in our family at that stage was six years of age. So perhaps she didn't get the, uh, I'm sure she didn't show it, but she probably, she must have grieved an awful lot that we didn't maybe see as much as maybe you might think we do, but I think she probably was suffered an awful lot um, that maybe some but didn't fully realise. It, it is wonderful how the maternal instinct takes over and the, and the need to supply and provide and, and look after the children sort of overrides their own grief and sort of just the emotions that they're going through. They put it aside and as you say, you, you didn't witness anything after that really, but perhaps when you went to bed at night or whatever, she's had her moments to sort of reflect on, on what was going on. Going back to that that day, you said you're travelling home in the in the car. Can, can you sort of piece together what you know unf- unfolded from from that point on? How how this played out? More concerned how you're around your dad really and, and the Oxford Street bus station. Yeah, well, we um, I had got into the back of a car by a gentleman who's no longer with us, Frank Dixon, and it's probably one of those Wilsley type cars that. <laughs> maybe people of my age would remember but I can remember sitting in the back of it and if you know the Castlereagh Road where you drive up past um, um, Grand Parade you drive on up past that and uh, as you head up towards uh, the lights over the right hand side you've, you've got a, a little I think it is well not that far from that there was a bus there was a bus stop and I think in those days, um, the blue buses, as you might call them, would have stopped and picked up some passengers on the way into town. And I can remember this day looking across and seeing his bus stopped at the at the, at the bus stop. And there was a, a lady who had got in and he had turned his head towards her to take money because he was collecting the money as she came in the front door. And we just drove on past and thought no more about it, you know, as, as you would. Kind of, we knew we'd see him later, and he was heading into in, into the Oxford Street, um, and that was how, how that bit of it unfolded. As to how his drive into Oxford Street um, would have been, I've only tried to imagine it in my own head and looking at the, the records of the various bomb explosions and whatnot. But he's bound to have got the feeling he's bound to have known because at this time, um, according again to the bus timetables, that would have been about twenty-five to three. Now, he would then have driven down. He would probably have been driving into Belfast just as some of those blasts in Botanic Avenue, Great Victoria Street, uh, Garmoyle Street. Uh, even, I think he was already in the theatre by the time the one went off on the, um, uh, the Queen Elizabeth Bridge, which blew a hole in the bridge. Um, so he was bound to have heard all that. And, and as far as I know, the bus would have been, because of the bomb in the Albert Bridge, you, I mean, you can see um, by what I'm saying, the whole place was surrounded by by blasts, by bombs. So he would probably have gone down uh, Lagging Bank Road, um, in a kind of a sad twist, probably driven past the, the mortuary that he would be brought back to later on. So he would have driven uh, down Lagging Bank Road, which at that time went right down to Oxford Street. He'd have turned left and then left again at the lights. Uh, if you can remember, <clears throat> if you know, just to Anybody who might be listening wouldn't have been familiar with Belfast then. But there's a pumping station just um, facing Chichester Street on Oxford Street. The entrance to the bus station was in there. So he'd have driven the bus down the side of that pumping station, uh, away down to the bottom, to where effectively the centre now of the um, the, the uh, big um, opera house, what do you call the big... Uh, uh, the waterfront. The waterfront hall is. Yeah. Almost, almost coinciding with the centre of the waterfront would have been the end of the uh, the bus, uh, the, the the bays. He's driven around that and then back up in and parked his bus at number 12. And that more or less the route he would have taken after I passed him um, up at uh, that part of the Castle Ray Road. 
And in the, in the immediate um, aftermath, and obviously there's a lot of, you know, like when any anyone dies, there's a lot of confusion and mixed emotions. And, you know, it's a bit of a blur for people in, in the immediate aftermath of a death in the family. But, you know, I'm I'm really interested in, in something, you know, we've talked about, and it ties in a bit with our previous guest, um, Robert Niblock, who's recently written a play about the life of David Irvine. And I met David Irvine when I was a postgraduate student, and he always famously talked about Bloody Friday being his Rubicon, the day that he decided to join the UVF and return the service, he called it. And he talked about the funeral of the young man Irvine, uh, who, who was killed in Oxford Street, and how I think Brian Irvine was on Talkback last week talking about how the funeral was almost like a Greek tragedy with, you know, his mother wailing and this and the other. So, I mean, it's interesting because obviously Brian Irvine didn't become involved with the UVF, but David Irvine did. And he talks about Bloody Friday as being this Rubicon. I'm interested to know, how do you feel about that when you hear other people justifying the murder of your father for the reason they went on to take other people's lives? Yeah, it's interesting. As I said, um, in my own mind and a few things have written down anybody who did that didn't do it on our behalf you know it was it was never this part this family's idea that we should go out and take some kind of revenge or whatever so i can't i suppose comment more than than what what i'm saying it was never anything that we would have wished anybody else to take up um arms because whenever you think about it why would we want anyone else to suffer like we have suffered because anyone who who's, who's killed and I'll tell you a story. I have in my lifetime been out and about and um, one thing I've always enjoyed doing was maybe going to a graveyard and having a little look around. And it's it's actually, it's very sobering because I have gone into, uh, in Castle Derg, for example, on the Drumquin Road into um, the, the cemetery there and there's at least, I don't know, 30 uh, graves of UDR and so uh, people and, and police personnel and you come away and maybe you, you look at a particular grave and you take your phone out and you google it and you get the story of what has happened and then I thought to myself well let's go into Coal Island and let's go to the Republican plot and have a look at the grave of that particular and you, you know something you look at that grave and you google again what happened to that particular IRA person and then you've got to consider what you see on the google and what you see on the ground, because what you'll see in the ground is a graveyard of so-and-so. And you might see a little trinket from a daughter or a son lying there. And you think to yourself, well, that person was in the IRA. Maybe that person was at Loch Gall or whatever. Maybe that police officer, that soldier was blown up, whatever. But despite, when you take all that and you look at the ground and you see that little trinket from the little child who might have thought seen their father or their mother being murdered, despite what they've done or whatever, that brings a humanity to it. So for me, my own personal view is anyone who then decides to go out on behalf of me and my father and anybody else and do that and, and put somebody else in the ground, not doing it on our behalf. And I certainly would never, ever, um, you know, be in favour of that whatsoever. I don't know if that answers your question, Gareth, but it's oh, the no, best no, I can... No, it, it certainly does, Robert. And for me, it's something I... I I've struggled with over the years that idea that I suppose, you know, I'm thinking about Paul, our previous guest, Paul Wilson, and the justification for the murder of his father that was given was um, the bombing in Coleraine. You know, um, John White said that this motivated him so strongly that he felt compelled to take the life of Paddy Wilson and Arian Andrews. So for me, it's, it's, it's the ultimate act of selfishness, really, because they're not acting on the family's behalf. They're often acting contrary to the family's wishes and just keeping but the you, cycle going. You, so, yeah. You wonder sometimes perhaps uh, if people are maybe preconditioned to doing that anyway. And, and if uh, this is perhaps something that's just put them over the edge a little bit or it's given them the, the justification that they need. But um, um, I would yeah, no. imagine there couldn't be many people. Um, I could imagine there couldn't be many people that you would chat to who would say, Yes, we think it was a good idea that someone died and did that. I can't imagine that 
than you'd come across. And maybe you have, I don't know, but it doesn't seem... No, no, no cer- certainly not. Um, not. Not to my mind. And, you know, I, I do remember last year on the 50th anniversary of your father's murder, um, I, know, I know you gave some interviews on the radio and on TV, and you were always um, sensitive, I think. I'm not sure what the word is, but you were always... Um, magnanimous i don't know what the word i'm looking for is but you always mention the people who were murdered in so-called revenge attacks in the hours after bloody friday and that's something we've talked about as well and it's something i've written about you know the, the forgotten victims of bloody friday so and, and we've talked about this idea that you know it's okay for me to talk about that as somebody who is privileged enough not to lose somebody in the troubles I can look at it slightly dispassionately, but you've actually been directly impacted, yet you're still able to say, these people should never have lost their lives. It wasn't done in our name. And we, you know, and, and, that, and you're thinking that was 1972. And even then, people couldn't get the message that this cycle of violence couldn't be couldn't go on. Families didn't want it. They weren't looking for revenge. And it was actually, you know, contrary to the wishes of, of families like yourself who lived in, a, in, a, in what I would see as a quiet dignity. Well, it, it was actually a deliberate point that I was making, uh, Gareth, I was making that deliberate point that the, the Bloody Friday wasn't a standalone. It was framed by this um, aftermath, if you like. Uh, it was framed by that. What the How it was framed beforehand, I don't know. Uh, we'll maybe discuss that later. But it was framed afterwards by, um, you know, people that I uh, mentioned, uh, Frankie Arthur, for example, is the one that pops to mind and, there's ones that you've written about, uh, and you've done a lot of research on that, which, to me, um, the names that I got were from that fabulous book, Lost Lives, and I tried to look through that and see which of those deaths in the, in the week or so afterwards might have been attributed back to Bloody Friday and tried to bring those people out. Uh, because the thing about Bloody Friday, um, it, it's kind of subsumed all the, de- the immediate deaths just after it, and, predict- and even before it, of course, because... There were people, I think, I think on that day, uh, I'm going into my memory here, but I have a funny feeling that maybe at least two people actually murdered either side of Bloody Friday, within that 24-hour period, who were forgotten about. So I think that the Bloody Friday was more than the nine people who died there. You can even add these people in just by, they shouldn't be forgotten because they died that day as well. And um, that's what I find that that book uh, is certainly... Uh, a gem to have and something I never part with because you need to have this um, I think this this catalogue of, of, of what happened and of course don't forget that I, I think it's, I read a story somewhere or I read a, a newspaper that there was a guts of 45,000 people who were injured as well over that particular period and um, some may be very lightly injured not more than a scratch but you can be sure there was an awful lot of people who were life-changing injuries in the middle of all that melee that went on for over 30 years i suppose going back to what you're saying there about revenge killings those perpetrating may think that they have the moral high ground but you're trying to deal with the death of a loved one and people are piling more death on top of that and because you are such a, a sort of kind person if you want you, you're taking on board that grief as well, that somebody may be carrying out some sort of horror in your family's name. That That's just compounding the pain that you, and emotion that you're already under. And I think people need to understand that tit for tat isn't about even the score. You, you're actually making those people you're thinking you're helping worse off. And I think that's what they need to realise, that you're not you're not even in the score at all. You're actually making the score more against your your, your side as you perceive it. You've had to take on ownership of maybe a couple of other deaths after that event. And you're talking about Bloody Friday and, and the deaths before and just after. I mean, I've named tonight's podcast, just for reference, not just another bloody day in Northern Ireland, because we do have those bloody days. But this one was one of those spectaculars, as they call it. But the amount of death in Northern Ireland over that period... It should be a, an individual day that was bloody, because I'm sure we had a bloody Wednesday and a bloody Tuesday and a bloody Monday. It, it was just a bloody a bloody time period for this country. And I think what you're saying is perfectly summing it up, Robert, that we need to remember them all, not just the ones who died in a large number or a large explosion, but each individual who maybe only made it on the page four that weekend because of what was going on on the front page. It, I think it's unfair that we, we, don't, we don't zoom in on those people and why they lost their lives. Well, that's it, Simon. And 
we've mentioned earlier that about um, you know this kind of vicarious uh, you know violence that's it's it's it's, 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 it's done in, in the name of perhaps say my father as as the program's talking about, and that almost feeds back into a form of guilt to us, you know, as if they're saying, well, we have done this for you. Well, no, you haven't, number one. And you got to be very strong in saying that because otherwise you could end up thinking, maybe, you know, uh, should I feel a little bit, I do feel a little bit guilty because that person's been hurt, murdered or whatever on, on by somebody who thinks that they should on, on, on behalf of Jackie Gibson, you know. And that was never, uh, as I said earlier, never um, the desire of our family. And, and whenever you've had the grief, I think those are the very people who don't want to see it visited on other people because they know what it's like. And um, yeah, that's 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 my thinking on it, Sam. Yeah. And even you know, thinking about that time, and I think in the immediate aftermath of of the events of of Friday the twenty first of July, the IRA realised very very quickly that the carried out basically an own goal that the the PR blowback of this was going to be really uh, uh, negative in its impact on the organization and, and support for it. So, you know, Sean McStephan, who was the chief of staff at the time, came out and said that, the you know, no civilians were targeted and that it was a message to the British government that the IRA could and would make a commercial desert of the city unless its demands were met. So you've done your research into the um, events of the day, the people who were convicted in the late 1970s. Do you think those do those convictions and and the what the statements given by the, the the people who were convicted for their part in Bloody Friday, do they give you closure or do they just lead to more questions and a demand for more knowledge about what happened? Well, the thing about what happened, and I say I've, I've tried to find it as much as I could through army records, um, through reading uh, what some journalists have written, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, as I say, we had the HET report done for the family back in, I think it was around about 2006 or seven or something. But there's a lot of, I have come across almost everything I've ever seen, and you know yourself as a researcher, very often it raises more questions than it answers when you see something that's been written down. And um, in terms of uh, the the conviction, you see, the guy who uh, was um, acqu- acquitted, and uh, the, you can find this in BBC Rewind, so I'm not saying anything that hasn't been um, published, if you like. The chap who was um, acquitted, um, you know, had put in uh, his plea was duress, that he'd been under duress and now this is an interesting I'm not saying it wasn't by the way don't, don't get me wrong but it the, probably the police at that time were in a terrible position because if someone is under duress according to the, the Lord Justice McDermott and his summing up was that unless the police could prove that they weren't under duress then he had no option but to acquit because the chap had already admitted driving the car from Stanfield Street uh, up um, Comic Street, down uh, Chichester Street, and into the into the bus station, and um, he had admitted that um, he had given timings, which I find very confusing. Even now, um, the timings don't work in with the witnesses that, and I have spoken to witnesses and people who were there in the office at the time, and. Um, that nothing really matches up properly uh, as to when the bomb was actually planted in the station. Um, by the witnesses, sorry, by the, the, the guy who admitted to driving it in, um, reading his statement, I can't see that he'd had the car into the bus station any time before 25 to 3, no matter how you would do it. And um, one witness that I've spoken to who's as sure today as they were back then because they went out to lunch, uh, this girl went out to lunch to meet her parents, and she had to be back at a certain time to allow other, other colleagues to go to lunch. And that time was 20 past one, and she saw the car 20 past one in the back of the station. Now, <laughs> he, 
this guy picked up the car at 20 past two. So can anybody tell me how that anomaly happened? I don't know. So that's one part of confusion. Um, the, the, the manager had said he only thought it was there 10 minutes beforehand. Um, someone else had seen it at 20 past two. So there's all this confusion as to when the car had arrived into the station. Um, and those, those anomalies were there in the depositions in the court. Um, so they weren't, didn't seem to be addressed as far as I can see. Uh, it was simply this chap was admitted, um, but was under duress. So, um, the acquittal was, um, essential, if you like, because of that, the police could not prove that he hadn't been under duress, which trying to prove a negative, I suppose, but I can't comment any more than what is seen and written down. Uh, I don't know, uh, the, um, situation. So how, how the, the, um, the, Admission came about. How the timings were in his head was he was, was he was he wrong about his timings or what? Um, and the whole I get the one to jump too far ahead of your questions here, but the whole idea of driving a car from a gentleman who couldn't drive, at least hadn't a driving license, should I say, um, who was away a lot, um, didn't get much practice at driving, was chosen to drive this car because some gunmen had turned up at the house he was staying in and said. We want you to drive this car, and if you don't, we'll shoot you. And that was his uh, motivation for driving the car. But again, the timings, something's a bit awry there. Um, but again, to choose someone who can't drive or doesn't drive very much, to drive a prime bomb, and had to be prime, I would understand, because um, if he was just chosen, he wasn't going to be putting a detonator, and he wasn't qualified to do that. So uh, he had to drive a fully prime bomb through... Uh, busy streets, and he also, he, he actually, again, it's almost laughable, he, he drove into um, a, a kind of a, a, a gridlock at Oxford Street, and some police officer there uh, waved him across into the station, um, obviously completely innocent, not knowing what was in the car, just assuming it was an employee, presumably, I would fully understand that, so I'm making no, no criticism there, but it's almost like kind of laughable in some ways whenever if that's the way it exactly happened which perhaps it didn't perhaps it did i don't know and i'm just i'm just thinking about this this period in the late 70s where these guys are brought in and charged and acquitted are are you aware of what's going on is your family kept up to date by the ruc uh, do you have any knowledge of, of of these mechanisms that are going on no, you have nothing at all. Uh, nowadays, I suppose you'd have a liaison officer who would probably keep you up to date. But back then, the first thing you'd have heard about it would have been you might have got a notification that there's a court case coming up and would you like to come along and be in the public gallery? You weren't involved in any other way. And I can vaguely remember being there, but it's it, it, it's one of these things I have very little memory of. Um, I have spoken to some of the people who have been called as witnesses and they would have described this gentleman sitting in the in the dock, looking up, very scared, obviously, and all the rest of it. But that's all their memory would be as well, because they, some of those people that I've spoken to, would have made a deposition as part of the the trial process, and those are in in the, in the file that I have. So I'm able to see what what they'd have said, all the witness statements, and one thing or another. Um, but at, at the time, no, we wouldn't have been hardly made aware of any any progress in the investigation at all. But and I think most of that the court thing I think Gareth was coming in around about nineteen seventy eight from memory, that was five or six years later. Um that was all beginning to take place. So again we'd have had been getting on with our lives and in the meantime not having a clue what was happening. It's really interesting when you talk about the H E T and you know, not not to jump all over the place, but there are discussions ongoing, obviously, about um, legacy, truth recovery, amnesty, you know, and people are obviously universally opposed to this idea of an amnesty and trying to draw a line under the, the, the conflict. But I've dealt with and talked to other families who've um, received HET reports, and almost unanimously, the feeling is that it was a tick box exercise that it didn't throw any fresh light on on the murder of their loved one and one thing really jumped out at me for uh the HET um report that you received 
which was about Brian Maguire. Can you talk a wee bit about that? Yeah, I just raised that point because it was more to show that the HET should have seen something there that they didn't. Not because it had any great bearing on Jackie Gibson or, or the case that they were reporting on, but Brian Maguire had been arrested, I think, in relation to Bloody Friday, but was never there was never any conviction, if I remember. But he was convicted of something else, and he was jailed. Um, and it's a sad story, too. He, he was jailed. Now, if we go back to the HET report, on the HET report, they mention Brian Maguire. And strangely, the HET report says something like, we have no records as to what happened or when Mr. Maguire was released. Something like that. That's generally the words that they used. But I happened to put Brian Maguire into Google and Hansard, and up popped on Hansard. And I think this is in May of 1978. Yeah, it was May of was found yeah. dead. Yeah, Brian Maguire was found dead in his cell in Castlereagh Police Station. Now, I just couldn't make the, I couldn't link these two things because why would the HET not find that out? Why did the HET gloss over? It was no real, but just said to me, look, these people haven't really done diligence that they've told us they were doing because not only that you see gareth um i found out by freedom of information by getting a um, 39th brigade um, logs that a warning came in for bloody friday sorry for oxford street at between 25 past two and half past two at a time by the way when my father was probably driving past down towards us on the Castlereagh Road. So between that time, now, that was never mentioned in the HET report, and I would kind of think if they were doing a report, a proper report for the family, that they'd at least have found that out for us, because that information was obviously there in 2005, six, seven, whatever, um, because those records would have been in place probably not more than a few months after they were written back in 1972. So it just gave me, a, 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 and if I knew now, if I knew then what I knew now, I'd have asked a lot harder questions. But we were very naive at, time, at that time, thinking that the HET were going to look over all the evidence. It probably wouldn't have made much difference to the outcome. But wouldn't it have been nice to have that information supplied and admitted to, if you like, that there was a warning here and uh, for whatever reason, the um, the warning didn't seem to get through. It didn't get through to the, uh, the Grand Opera, or the Grand Central Hotel, uh, Welsh Guards, until 10 minutes later, almost 15 minutes later, in fact. But that's the kind of thing I, I, I found in the research that was kind of puzzling. Yeah, it doesn't really inspire you that it was a thorough investigation and the HET were across the detail. And if they're missing glaringly obvious facts like prisoners dying in sales and they can't find release dates. You're wondering exactly how accurate they are on the other stuff. You know, it's it, it doesn't doesn't inspire. I mean, I know there's plenty within uh, the community who have looked at the HET differently and sort of accused them of witch hunts and stuff, but it's it's, it's sort of given, given us an idea that maybe Inspector Cluzo was in charge of them and what what they were actually doing was, was haphazard at best. Um you don't get an impression that they were doing it on purpose. I take, I take it you think that they were just there was an aptitude rather than anything else. It may have been, it may have been something like they're all English detectives. They're under, the, I think, most of them are English detectives brought over to do it, but they were probably under the under the control of the of the. Um, would it have been the RUC or the PSNI back in those PSNI PSNI. They were under the control. Yeah, under the control. Of of the police here, so whether or not they were just due to tick back box exercise, we did obviously get a, a collated uh, book with a lot of stuff that we didn't know. Don't get me wrong, we had that, and then they would have said to us, "Do you have any questions?" So we, as a family, went away and we brought in some questions. But probably looking back now, they were the most naive questions you could imagine, because we didn't have the other information 
if I had if I had read the report and I had had that um, 39th Brigade log sitting beside me, believe you me, I'd have asked them, I found it, why didn't you find it? You know what I mean? That, that's, but of course then, it's only, as we were saying to Gareth earlier, in the latter years that I've really taken uh, as much an interest of this, which I should have done long ago. But of course, you're living your life, you're bringing your family up and all the rest of it. You, we don't give it the, the attention you should. But it's interesting you t- you touch upon something there with the HET and 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 the Brian McGuire, you know, the just the basic lack of research done by HET around that fundamental fact that you know he'd been um, found dead in Castle Ray uh, rather than you know released at any stage. It it reminds me of well a the research I've done on on the conflict, but also when I worked in the public record office. The thing that was always drummed into us dealing with these very important files that were um, requested by people like yourself, people who'd gone through trauma, was that you check them, you double check them, and then you check them again, and you make sure that everything is very rigorous. So that's me at that stage as a civil servant, knowing that you have to be sensitive and now it's 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 well known the the tra- trauma informed practice where you're doing your utmost best not to re-traumatize people who've already gone through that process, and um, whether it's people looking for their troubles pension payment or um, any any thing where somebody has gone through a trauma, they want the information, they want assistance, they want help. You do your best to help them along the way without re-traumatizing them. And for me. Just even that very fundamental omission, mistake, um, lack of interest maybe in, in delving too deep because you talked about it being a deep, it should have been a deep review of your dad's murder, but ultimately it, it seems to have just been skimming the surface in many areas. And that's where it comes back to the debates that are ongoing about um, information retrieval, um, legacy, how we deal with the past. Well, if that's what we've had previously, is that what's going to be like in the future? And then you're just repeating that trauma and f- people like yourself and other families are just going to be put through the ringer for, for no real sense of truth or closure? Well, I went as far as <clears throat> I had been in touch with Legacy Branch in the PSNI and there's some very, very helpful people within that. And <laughs> I suppose naively, I one day had put in an, uh, a freedom of information request to get the trial document, the whole trial police file, well, you'd have thought I'd have asked the Crown Jewels because uh, it wasn't within a day. I always usually I usually put my phone number on the bottom of any emails and I feel happy enough for people to ring me. But I got a phone call from PSNI more or less to say that under no circumstances were I going to get the, the, the police file because uh, probably, and I could, you know, by the time they'd finished telling me why, it probably made sense, you know, and maybe I was being naive. But um, at the same time, uh, that's the way that you get to know. I don't think the re-traumatizing thing is such an issue, Gareth, particularly after this time, uh, that you'd, all you want, you want to know the truth. And I found that what I wanted to do was find out as much as I could around the circumstances of that, that day, um, whatever, warts and all, if you like, um, whoever was responsible, uh, uh, you know, whether it was the provost, the police, the army, whoever were doing things. Because let's face it, I mean, <clears throat> I think it was Maria McGuire in her book, um, uh, To Take Up Arms, where she had more or less said that there was, uh, if the police and army were caught out with, with one bomb, bomb warning in Donegal Street, what did they think was going to happen if they were going to plant 21 bombs around the city in that day? It couldn't happen. It couldn't ha- have any other uh, outcome. So, um, no, the re-traumatizing doesn't, wouldn't be something that I'd be concerned about. And I would say most families would rather know exactly what happened and don't be patronized into thinking that you're being traumatized because let us make that decision, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I suppose what what I was getting at more was um, it's not given the information over that's re-traumatizing. It's, it's, it's given the wrong information or not given the correct information and sort of not being, um, sort of thorough in, in putting together, uh, as HET did, a uh, sort of document of, of information that should put some of the pieces together and missing out or getting those sort of fundamental facts wrong. 
to me is a re-traumatizing bit. But I, I, I actually, I'm, I'm really glad you, you, you touched upon that about condescending and being condescending. Because that's something we talked about a lot in Prony as well. You know about how the idea that you're given, you know, somebody requests a file, an inquest or a coroner's inquest relating to the murder of their loved one, and you, as an archivist or a civil servant make these decisions according to the freedom of information. Now that boil, that comes down to, and it might be something you want to talk about, but it comes down to say post-mortem photographs where we decide, okay, this is a risk to people's health and safety. It'll just be too much for families to, to see this stuff. It has to be blanked out. Okay. That was then ultimately agreed upon by the minister, department of justice, Northern Ireland office. They unanimously said, look, under no circumstances should these photographs be released into the public domain or, or, or even the families. So again, we had those discussions in house, if you can understand where we were talking to each other, it's that moral dilemma. It's if the family want this, should we really be the guardians of this material? Because ultimately it's your family member or Mr. X's family member or Mrs. Y's family member. So I, I, I agree there. One thing I would never want to be. And I think people who have a bit of wit about them wouldn't want to be condescending to the families and would want to actually go with what the families want. But there's all this legislation that basically blocks out what families want. And that's the trouble that um, a lot of people encounter because information is redacted. We can understand why some information is redacted because it's, you know, people's personal details, police officers, whatever. But when it comes down to stuff about your family member, okay, you get stuff under privileged access. You get a wee bit more information, like your father's full address, whereas I would just get a redacted version of that. But ultimately, the stuff that... I get the impression, the stuff that um, maybe lived long in your subconscious, you agonized over about what actually happened to your father, is concealed from you as a, as a sort of uh, as a document. So can you talk a wee bit around that and your interaction with the police down at Sea Park? Yeah, well, that could be the answer to it, you see, because whenever I um, rang up PSNI Legacy and they put me on to Sea Park, um, I had uh, then arranged to go up to Sea Park and they took me in and um, they brought the file out. And at that time, you're sitting across the desk from a police officer or civilian specialist, whatever, and the file is sitting there and they'll always ask you, you know, or can we open this? Now, you have the choice at that point to say no. And I think that's what the wet has to be done. And if this, I'm not saying that they're going to uh, give you a photocopy and send you home with it. I, I don't think that's required. If they open it, let you see it, close it again, put it away, take as long as you want, put it away. And that's what happened to me. Now, I was... I didn't want to see the postmortem pictures, but the picture that I did see uh, was a man lying on a, um, a white mortuary slab. The picture was in black and white because these were before digital cameras in color. Um, he otherwise looked, you know, it looked normal. Um, he had no shirt; it was blown off, um, and I couldn't see the wound that, that was fatal because of the way he was lying, but. It was just a single photograph, and that's all it was. But it left me feeling better, if you if you understand what I'm saying, because beforehand I didn't have any idea. And it left me with feeling a lot better. But I didn't take the photograph away. I didn't want a copy of it. But the fact that I had seen it, and I think if there's, if there's a way to do it, that would be the way that you can simply say, look, and it's up to each individual family member if they want to go on and see it, because... It may well be that there are clues in those photographs that you can figure out as to what happened to the person. And um, whenever I talk to the people in the bus station uh, who knew the station, the layout of it, it kind of way, in my mind, why worked out what probably most likely happened. Of course, not absolutely sure, but most likely how he met his death within that pay-in office in the station after the, this £110 bomb not 10 feet away from him and off and took the lives of uh, the other five people around the car. Um, and I almost, so that to me was important for me. And as an, a little uh, addition to that, uh, I was Googling and I came across um, a picture of a gentleman lying in the bus station 
And it took me uh, three seconds to realise who it was. It was my father. And I found out exactly where he ended up in the bus station after the blast. Now, if I hadn't been to Sea Park, I probably wouldn't have known that that was him lying in the station. So those two things were connected. And because that's why it's important if you want to see and try and get as much information as possible. You may need to look at these not very nice things. And if you're fit and able to do that and it won't traumatize you, then I would recommend, you know, maybe someone should. If there's, especially if you're trying to find out a little bit about the last few moments or whatever it was of your loved one's life. And that's um, my experience of photographs, if you like. And uh, my idea would be nobody's saying we want to have photographs because the problem is Gareth and, and Sam these days, what's going to happen with the photograph? It's going to be all over the internet very easily. You know, you can't do that. So maybe if there was a way you could go and view it, leave your phone outside, you're not allowed to take pictures, go in, look at it, and come out again. I can't see how that would be a problem. That's it. It's ultimately giving the agency to the the relatives and not being condescending, not making that decision on their behalf. It's about giving um, families the agency, the autonomy to say, I actually do want to go down this uh, route. I do want it. I want to see if it'll give me closure or it'll not, not closure by any means, but to give me answers about the circumstances. And I think, you know, in, in a society like the one that we live in, we should be giving people the opportunity if it if it helps with part of that process that's ongoing, if if they if they feel that they want to go and have a look, and okay, you were given the opportunity to say no right up to the last second, and you know, obviously we're talk, talking about trauma informed. There, there was somebody there who was able to deal with the emotions, with the potential, um, because you don't know how you're going to react in that moment. Nobody does, so at least you've got that support network. You've got the follow up. You've got the the sort of um, best practice in place. So I, I'd, I'd wholeheartedly agree that it would be good to sort of ask families what they want rather than the government making decisions about these sort of things. Yeah, yep, definitely. I mean, that, that to me, that is very important because as I said before, it enables you to begin to patch things together that you could no way would you have known otherwise. And it's only whenever I connected those two photographs uh, that I was able to, know something that I hadn't known for almost, well, for 48 years, actually. And that's the truth. And it seems to be, how, how could that have happened? But it did. You know? Robert, it, you, you, seem, you seem to be a very well-adjusted person as such. Okay. Uh, you seem to be, you've dealt with this in, in your way, in a private way, and you've moved through life. Has there ever been moments in your life where this has creeped in where you didn't expect it to creep in? Not really, Sam, and um, uh, no, not that I can think of. Um, in fact, it was probably the little project which I, um, you know, uh, got involved in, trying to put all these things together, which um, gave me so much information that I didn't know. And knowledge is certainly, and to my mind, very, very important, unless you're the type of person who can put this behind you and never think about it again. But I don't think... Most people have, um, and I say I know I've spoken to some people who do some research and they've said their families can't even understand why they're doing it. So it's not a widespread thing. There are some people who will do it and some people who really can't, they're not interested. And that's fine. I have no problem. But I kind of felt it a duty on my part that at least know that this man went to his work, you know, um, for a day and he didn't make it home that night because somebody, had a, an idea that um, it was important to sort of blow Belfast up and whoever got caught in it, well, that was just too bad. And um, as to what the actual truth of the whole um, reason behind it, I don't know, that's for historians, I suppose, rather than me. But in the small bit that I have looked at, um, he was caught up in that and I just wanted to uh, um, find out as much as possible. And it almost took the emotion out of it, Sam, if you can understand that, because you were more or less almost being a kind of a, a detective in some ways, trying to look at all the, the written information. Uh, and, you know, I know I sent you guys a, a little essay that I'd done. Um, and believe me, I'm probably only scratching the surface, really. And, and others would be able to tell me, could augment it in a whole lot of ways, if only A, they're still around, B, they're willing to talk to me, or C, willing to open up files. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that piece you sent through was, was quite detailed and it, it sort of exposed the the underachievement of other divisions that maybe should have picked this stuff up in the first place. But as you said, maybe maybe this was your process of, of detachment from it that allowed you to process all the information you were, you were getting to and kept the trauma out of it. Um, I have found talking to you tonight, Robert, absolutely enlightening. It, it, if somebody who has went through what you have went through, I, I expected... I don't know what I expected, really, but this is not what it was. And to find that you bear no real malice towards anybody, and you're only interested in finding out what happened to your dad, and and letting people know the what kind of person that he was, I I have to thank you for coming on. You you, you I don't know you, you you've given me you've given me hope that we we can actually move forward. That there is there is processes out there that we can put in place and people that we can we could talk to. It's given me a bit of bit more hope of what we can do going forward and i think i think if we're going to discuss legacy and we're going to discuss how we deal with with the future and deal with the past i think people like yourself need to come forward more and we need to we need to we need to hear your stories because if we're going to deal with this today we need to deal with it on your behalf as such thank you sam and gareth and certainly what i would say and this is a little bit maybe controversial but any probos out there want to come and tell me what happened that day i'd be happy to talk to them and um, yeah. no malice or no, you know, yeah, how, well, how else are we going to find out? That's uh, absolutely, you know, all all actors, as it were, have their um, sort of part to play. And that, that includes information retrieval, information recovery and truth recovery. And yep, well, that, that, that invitation's been extended. So hopefully somebody will pick up the mantle and, and do the decent thing. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Robert. Thank you very much.